Hello and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon belden Castingway, Director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Now, if you're like me, the holidays make you think of food. So today I'm delighted to welcome Anya Fernald, class of 1998, a sustainable food expert and the co-founder and CEO of Belcampo. Anya, you once described Belcampo to Food & Wine magazine as the world's smallest, crunchiest multinational. So to start out, can you just tell us a little bit about what Belcampo is? Our primary business is a vertically integrated meat company in California. We own a 20,000 acre farm in Northern California, a USDA certified slaughterhouse adjacent to the farm, and we have seven restaurant butcher shops around the state. The second part of my business is based in Belize, where I have 3,000 acres of commercial farmland, also certified organic, uh, where we're producing cacao, sugarcane, corn, uh, and coffee, and we have a small luxury eco-lodge. Um, the main focus of that business is to produce distillates in the long term. So we're going to be producing organic certified rum and whiskey. So that's the multinational part is that we have a business down in Belize and then of course the main operations currently in California. So hearing all of this, listeners might imagine that you grew up on a sprawling ranch in big sky country or something, but I, I happen to know that's not true. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, I actually was technically born on a farm. Um, I, my parents are both professors, and, you know, it's like when the academic career, you bounce around a lot for postdoctorates and things like that. So my parents were living in Germany when I was born, and they had, for just reasons to, just to save money, rented a house that was above a dairy barn on a working farm. And the house actually famously had no heating. It was just heated by the cows themselves. Oh, wow. Um, I got to grow up drinking raw milk right from the farm, and I lived there till I was two, maybe two and a half, and then we came back to the U.S. Um, but I, I didn't grow up around farming at all. Uh, I grew up in um, Eugene, Oregon, and then uh, Palo Alto. Uh, my parents are both academics, and I was just always really interested in food and farming. Uh, and I think I approached it with a curious mind and kind of an outsider's approach. I think it's great to have a food and farming background, a real ranching background. I think it also can limit you sometimes in terms of just having this a certain, you know, farming is, is very difficult to change. Um, and it's very, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that have worked well for many, many centuries. And so it's to bring in a fresh perspective, it is, I think, helpful. It's challenges for me not growing up in a proper farming background. I think there's also some benefits in terms of being able to look at things really from an outsider's perspective. So what was your path to Wesley, and why come all the way out to Connecticut for a liberal arts education? Um, the honest answer is that my parents both went to Swarthmore. My sister was there at the time, and I didn't want to go there, and they wanted me to go to a small liberal arts college. And, I, you know, I like school. I'm, I did well enough. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to be in an academic career. I went to Wesleyan to tour it, and I fell in love with it. I just really liked the vibe. And I said, this is where I'm going to go to school. I only applied there. I applied early. I got in, and it was done. And I just felt a kinship to the university. I liked the fact that there was, at that time, there was no uh, real food focus in any colleges like there is now. 
And I didn't want to go to like ag school and have that real like big farming background. I knew I wanted to do something different. I thought I probably wanted to be a food writer, and then I was that for five minutes and decided not to do that. But I, I really loved that they were open to different approaches, and it seemed like they were going to let me find my own path. And actually, it totally worked out because I, you know, my, my advisors were so um, just kind of open to me exploring my own way of learning that, you know, I ended up doing my senior project at the Middlebury Historical Society and spending all my days, you know, curating this amazing, fun historical exhibit, which is just much more how a real manual-oriented person like myself learns better. Um, and, you know, it was just embraced by the professors, and it worked out really well for me. So I found that they were really adaptive to the way that I wanted to learn. Um, and I don't have words for it. You know, I didn't have words for it at the time, but I think now there's much more of an understanding of a spectrum of different types of intelligence. And I think my type of brain, I just, I, I need to be engaged on a lot of different levels. I hop around a lot. Um, I, I, I'm not the kind of person who just sits there and reads a book for 10 hours straight. So it, I felt at Wesleyan a ability to, to handle that type of approach and that type of creativity. I really liked. How did you go about exploring your interests outside the classroom when you were at Wesleyan? I cooked a lot. Um, I didn't garden or do any real farming stuff. I don't even know if that was an option um, or I didn't know how to engage with it in Connecticut. Um, but I, I really keyed into the historical society too. I started there as an intern, I think my freshman year and ended up doing my senior project there. And there was a West grad, um, Dee Longley, who was still at the historical society right there on that main street. And she became a real mentor and a friend to me and we're still friends. And she took me under her wing and I spent, you know, four years working with her at the Historical Society and that was really an our outlet for my passion um, because I got to archive things and build my own databases and, you know, do my own exhibits and kind of have an outlet for that kind of creativity. Um, and then I also, you know, I did a lot of uh, cooking. Um, I was making cheese a lot there. Um, I was really into cheese making. I took a year off and was a baker um, and then I basically springboarded from baking to full-time cheese making because I leveraged that to be able to get a Watson Fellowship to go study cheese making in Europe. Um, so I definitely was, was pursuing food and kind of what would it be called? Like there, I probably knew that the smart way of saying this when I was at Wesleyan, like the sort of like the physical tactile history, which also really fascinates me of working at the Historical Society. Now, I read somewhere that you were actually making cheese in your dorm or maybe in your closet. Yeah. Is that actually true? I did. I did. I lived my sophomore year. I'm still amazingly friends with my roommate from that time, <laughs> and um, she will vouch for my story. But, yeah, I was making cheese. You know, I started baking a lot um, just to find an outlet for my interest in culinary stuff and, you know, just my passion. I started to work on making good breads and figuring out, you know, how to do starters and make my own starters. And then I started to get interested in early American breads. Um, and I actually wrote one of my, I don't know, one of those thesis papers things on, like, sourdough bread and history. So I was making all these different types of sourdough breads. And I started to make fermented milks to use in my breads. And then... From there, I started making cheese, um, and I was experimenting hanging hanging my cheesecloth from the curtain rod in the in the closet. Um, so that was that was fun stuff. My roommate was tolerant and um, appreciative of the cheese. <laughs> Apparently so. Um, so how did you go about deciding what to do after graduation? You you mentioned the Watson. Was the cheese making purposeful in terms of your application for that? 
Yeah, I applied to do cheese making. I didn't have another plan. Okay. <laughs> I sometimes suffer from overconfidence. Um, fortunately, it worked out in that case because I, I just that was the only thing I thought of doing after college. I was like, I'm going to apply and get that fellowship because I want to go to Europe and I want to make cheese. Um, and fortunately, I got it. And then from there, I, I got a job over there with cheesemakers. And I ended up then going to work for another Italian group for, and I lived over there for six years total. Now, you co-authored a book called A World of Presidia, Food, Culture, and Community. Could you explain for us what a presidium is and why they're important to the slope food movement? Yeah, that was the project that I ran in Italy, and it's sort of an awkward word. It means fortress in Latin, and it, the idea is a way to protect really historic foods. And the way we protected them was helping them with marketing and a big deal in the EU when I was living there in the early thousands was regulatory compliance because what happened is the European Union was formed and um, previously every country's food safety standards had been nationally organized and regulated and after the EU they were all updated to the most rigorous standard which I think was like Germany or Sweden or something and so all of the other countries had to update their HACCPs and all the regulatory compliance. And literally, you know, hundreds of small food businesses were closing. So there was a, you know, lots of activist groups said, we're gonna lose all this great European food if we all have to comply to these laws. You know, it was things like, and, and I think that they were applied differently, but in some countries they were saying that all the cheeses that were aged on wood that you needed to take all those wooden shells, throw them away, and put in plastic shells. And so in some countries, they implemented that, and listeria went through the roof because on a cheese crust, you always have listeria, and it actually breeds better on plastic. So when you had these natural cheeses and you put them on the plastic, you actually got higher incidence of, of listeria. And the wood has natural antibacterials, particularly oak, which is what the traditional shells were made out of, and you never got listeria on that because the, the wood served as a natural antimicrobial. So there was all this kind of debate about how uh, the natural processes were helping these products be safe and healthy, which is why they had evolved for you know centuries. And so our group was advocating to protect these small-scale producers from the increasingly harsh regulatory climate, but also just helping them get marketing and um, access to new markets to sell their products. And how long total were you in Europe? And tell me a bit about what were the most important things you learned while you were there? Um, I learned how to appreciate uh, simple food, I think. I, I, I really understood the deliciousness of really simple, great food. That was my major takeaway in life there. And I also got just an amazing chance to, you know, I worked with like 50 or 60 different groups of small-scale food producers. I got to go all over the world because we started out doing it in Italy, and then it was all Europe, and then it was all, you know, Guatemala and Madagascar and Tunisia and Morocco and going to visit these small-scale producers in these countries and it was epic it was amazing so I got this real like generalist knowledge of lots of different small-scale food producers but the 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 real personal takeaway was a, a great education for my palate um, and that just is a question of time and taste you know being able to have access to lots of great foods um, and I, I was amazed to come back to the U.S. and realize how dramatically my palate, my preferences had changed. Um, and I was there for six years total. And what ultimately brought you back to California? I was 
old was I? 30? And it was, okay, if I stay here, I'm going to be Italian. You know, like I'm going to have kids here and they're not going to want to leave. You know, it's sort of like I'm, I need to figure out where I'm going to put down roots. So I moved back. And, um, and I also felt that I'm a very entrepreneurial person and I'm pretty, like, can do and, like, want to move forward and get stuff done. And uh, Italy is a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful country, but it's not really action-oriented, you know, like, and it's very regulatory and, you know, like, you have to get a funny stamp from the post office to pay your electricity bill. Like every month you gotta go get the stupid stamp and it's like that kind of stuff drove me crazy. So I, I couldn't really fathom living there my whole life. Um, also, cause I knew that I wanted to start my own business or businesses down the road and I felt like doing it there would have been really challenging and I would have probably ended up doing something in the tourism industry. Um, so those were the factors. And I, I can still imagine, you know, people were asking me, are you insane? You had this great job and a full visa and this sort of dream life in Italy, why would you come back? And I thought, well, I, I really couldn't stay, you know, just for my personality. Um, it was just too uh, too rigid and, and too difficult to, to move and build things. So what did you decide to do after you came back? I wanted to work on the ground in a really activist role. You know, at the time in Slow Food, I was doing these, so I'd gone from working for a consortium of cheesemakers in Sicily. From there, I was recruited to go to Slow Food. I ran this international micro-loan program. And I was coming back to the States, of course, once or twice a year. And I was very interested in food justice because I'd seen, you know, in Europe that there were these very poor communities that ate very well and were very healthy. So, you know, in a lot of places that I was working, the poorer you were, the better off you ate. And so the total difference between that and the U.S. context, where the poorer you are, the worse off you eat, was really fascinating to me. So I wanted to be, you know, roll my sleeves up, get very on the ground, and I went for, I mean, I literally stopped work in Italy on Friday, started my new job on Monday in California, and it was running a big farm-to-school program in the state of California based out of Davis, um, working in Fresno and Watsonville, um, Ventura County, and really disenfranchised agricultural communities. And my major task was to set up a produce distribution business that was gonna service the schools and hospitals in those impoverished communities with fresh fruits and vegetables from the local farms. And so I did that. Um, and I spent two years doing that. And it was a real education in the challenges of the system, <laughs> you know, of the real inequities and working in the school food service system was very, very challenging. Um, but I, you know, I had some great successes. I set up a statewide procurement program for Kaiser Permanente, big hospital group out here, that got them sourcing tons of produce from local farms. Um, I built this little business up. It ended up being sold um, by the nonprofit. Uh, and I set up farm-to-school programs in Fresno Unified, Oakland Unified, um, Ventura Unified, and ran them. So it was, it was gratifying, but it was also um, definitely a real step away from the sort of artisan food work that I now do and that I did back then. Um, and it just taught me a lot about the real institutional challenges of the subsidy system and of American agriculture on a larger scale. Um, and I enjoyed it and I enjoyed the challenges, but I also felt that I wasn't going to be able to make real change because there were so many institutionalized issues that blocked good food from getting into those 
programs, getting into schools and getting into hospitals, um, that were everything from the government subsidies of the school lunches um, all the way to you know the government subsidies of the farms, the distribution systems. I mean, there's just myriad issues, and I realize, okay, I can do this for my whole life. I don't think I'm going to create real change unless I really like become a politician or you know really get activists around policy changes, which isn't really my passion. So I didn't. I felt frustrated by my inability to create movement and change. So what did you so do I from went, there? So then from there I went to um, work at. It basically was feeling like I hit a wall on that, and I jumped at an opportunity that I saw really as a great vessel for myself um, to be able to, to network and connect with people who could help me um, and also build something powerful. So I started to, I, I became the executive director of Slow Food Nation, which was an event that Alice Waters had started that was an offshoot of Slow Food. And I did that for just under a year and I raised like $3 million. The event was really successful and it really helped get me into the public eye. You know, so after that, event, I got, you know, a call from the CEO of Whole Foods saying, hey, realize you can do a lot of things. And I got a lot of encouragement of people who saw how successful this business, this little, you know, event was. It became massive, um, you know, massive media event because it was the first kind of major statement of the alternative food movement on a national level. And it was, I was just organizing the event, you know, I was raising money and coming up with concepts and selling tickets, and, but it was just running a business and I liked that. Um, and so after that, I was positioned to start my own consulting firm, which I ran for two or three years, um, basically helping small-scale food businesses get up and running. Um, that was really a combination of my entrepreneurial background in the U.S. that at that point was my produce distribution company and then the event business and then, you know, helping essentially usually people who had some investment dollars figure out what they were going to do, how they were going to make money, how much money they needed to raise business planning, marketing, and development for small-scale food businesses. And I hadn't done that thinking, oh, I'm going to be a consultant forever, but it was, okay, let me park here. It was 2008, park here for a little while and see what's going on and see what I can do uh, to, to really um, land in a position that's going to be where I'm going to put all of my energies in the future, which ended up being Belcampo. Food and Wine magazine described you as the pragmatic inside a room full of romantics, the one who values the bottom line as much as aroma or taste. Now, from hearing your story, you can certainly see the roots and how you got interested in making artisanal food and being involved in that world. But how did you get interested in the business side of food? Um, I like to solve problems and I like to make money. Fair enough. Could you talk a little bit about the hows and whys of how you started Bell Campo? Yeah, um, I really loved the challenge of the meat industry. Um, and so I had just as my personal hobby, when I moved back to California, I had started to buy and distribute meat, whole cows. Um, and that was just because I couldn't get good meat here, so I set up a, like a buying club. Within the, I think it was like the first one, it was in 2005, to buy whole cows, and I sourced the farmer, and I figured out the slaughterhouse, and I got into that. And I, then, I, of course, I love charcuterie, because I lived in Italy for so long. I live off of charcuterie, so I started to buy whole pigs and butcher them and make my own you know, salami and ham and stuff. So I was in meat just because of personal passion. 
And um, it was just amazing to me how much opportunity there was. You know, here in California, just like I'm sure everywhere now, in the, I mean, I definitely see it in a lot of urban areas, but you have a lot of great means to get really good quality produce, um, you know, from the farmer's markets. But there's also good stuff, I think, in distribution. You know, you get pretty mainstream. And what I saw was that in meat, you know, I can go to my local good quality grocery store and find, you know, good organic local stuff. Um, I can't find that with meat even now. And that was sort of interesting to me, that there was all this movement around produce. And of course, I'd run a produce distribution company, so I was sort of thinking, I wonder what it's like on the meat side. Um, and I had a really interesting client for my consulting company who's a, a big barbecue chain down in Alabama, and they've got restaurants all around the southeast. Uh, and I was working with him on developing a supply value chain for sustainable quality pork for their barbecue restaurants. And that, too, I just sort of started thinking about meat as a big challenge. So when I met my partner in Belcampo, he already had the core of the land up in Shasta that we now farm on, he owned, and he was really interested in making a big play in meat. And I'm thinking, this is awesome because this is where we need change. This is, like, where we can really create something big. And there's a lot of money in it. You know, like, with the, the margin on meat is not huge, but you're talking about uh, the big-ticket item in people's grocery basket. And there's really nobody who's figured out how to do it in a super premium, from a, from a values context, you know, environment, uh, sustainability, uh, social justice in terms of paying your farmers well and not using bad chemicals and treating people and animals well. Like, nobody's cracked that nut. And that was really, really exciting to me. And he had the resources to do something big. So that was just like, okay, this is amazing. I'm going to make this work. And I, you know, initially um, I was working on helping him flesh out his vision for the project, which is, you know, in some ways an iterative to what Belcampo ended up being, um, slightly different though. And then after a few, probably a year and a half of that, he said, hey, you come up with a pitch. And so I came up with my pitch, which was, we called it Meat Market 2.0, and it was the butcher shop restaurant, and we were going to, you know, use the middle meats to the high-end stuff in the butcher sh in the restaurants and then sell the grind. We had a whole plan for that, and he said, this is a cool idea, and he then funded my consulting company for a year and a half to develop the financial model, which was very, very important because I actually ran through the whole exercise of, of the finance model uh, and really got my head around the numbers, and that was sort of my on-the-ground MBA, and it was also him testing me, you know, testing my ability to execute, my ability to deliver, um, and it was a very effective way for him to see if I had the credibility and, or the, the, the chops to do this, and then once we finalized the plan, it was, okay, Anya, I'm going to fund it if you'll run it, um, and so I, of course, you know, left the challenge. I mean, it's a, it's a real dream opportunity to have the resources to make an investment to change things for the better. Um, and it's, you know, now it's, we're in our fourth year and things are starting to get easier. You know, it's not getting, it's not great yet, um, but it's, it's definitely been the kind of thing where you think, man, if I had known early on what this was going to be like, I don't know if I would have done it, you know. Um, but it's definitely exciting to see, you know, the, the impact that we've made and, and just the, the potential that I see ahead of us. And as we addressed in the beginning, Belcampo is now a large multifaceted organization. And I'm curious to know, how did you go about deciding how and when and where to expand as you were building? Um, I did, I mean, basically, my, um, there's not that many mar 
markets in California that can really sustain what we do, not necessarily pricing-wise, but mostly just in terms of the density of people who really care about organic and environmentally sourced meat. So it, it was pretty obvious, like, we're going to be limited to the Bay Area and down to L.A. Um, and then within those areas, I put my first location in a very wealthy neighborhood in Marin. And uh, then I was, you know, surprised when that actually ended up performing worse than my location in downtown L.A. Um, you know, so it, it, it was, it's been a little bit of a, now that location is going better, but it's, it's interesting to me that we've, you know, my assumptions on this is going to be a product that just really is mostly interesting for wealthy people if not tested true necessarily. Um, it's actually been uh, something where we've learned that there's, there's a lot of depth in our market. There's a lot of people who really care about this who are interested in this type of product. Some of our listeners may know you best from your stint as a judge on Iron Chef. How did you get involved with the show? I got recruited for that after I uh, ran Slow Food Nation. I just did a lot of TV during that event, and um, they tapped me. I think they wanted a sustainability person. They ended up doing it for three years until the show uh, got shut down. Um, but it was great visibility for me, um, and it was a lot of fun to really get to taste all those different foods and meet so many different chefs, network. Um, really, really wonderful experience. So I, I did, you know, dozens of episodes. I did a whole season of Next Iron Chef, and then I was a regular judge for the following three years. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, and it, definitely food TV has evolved so much. Now I'm getting more tapped to do things that are around being on farms and cooking and much more authentic, you know. But back even in 2009 when I started that, it was still the, the fancy, fancy food moment. You know, like it was all about fancy stuff and spheres and foams and you know and fortunately everything's evolved in a wonderful way and what do you see as the future of the slow food movement and of belcampo the future of belcampo is to add another three stores in the next year and a half we want to get up to about 30,000 square feet of real estate, so we're about halfway there now. So I think we'll be up to probably 15 stores within three or four years. And we're looking to set a precedent for how you can do the right thing and make money at it. Um, and I'm hoping that the precedent that we set is going to inspire a lot of people to invest in more meaningful plays in the sustainable food space. My business is transformative. You know, we're taking thousands of acres, making them organic and regenerative. We're selling a different caliber of product than available anywhere in the U.S. right now. And we're doing it in a way that is socially and ethically responsible. Um, it's different to do that than to launch, say, another organic granola bar company. But another organic granola bar company is a hell of a lot easy to, easier to raise money for, you know, or another meal delivery company or another snack box stuff. I mean, I just see so much of that, and I say, come on, world, like, let's fund something that's really real. Let's invest in the fundamentals. Let's invest in good agriculture. It's kind of a parallel argument to, like, investing in basic science, you know, of mm -hmm. saying we have to invest in the core to be able to get good ideas. And I, I want to see more investment going towards real meaningful changes instead of all this money going towards, you know, just more manufactured food that shuttles the same kind of crummy ingredients around the world faster. So I'm hoping that I, my success will inspire a different strategies in terms of long-term investments. And for slow food, you know, I think that slow food lit a fire. 
I mean, it certainly lit a fire in me, and I think it's been a transformative kind of catalyzing concept for the world. So the question is, does that need to be a movement? Does that need to be formalized, or is that a moment? You know, is it like saying, does the environmental movement need an association? You know, I don't know. Um, I think it's interesting to see what's going to happen, because I think that, you know, for people like me, that I, I felt like we were holding this flame in the late 90s and early 1000s about, like, we're eating the wrong way. Things need to change. Animal fat's not terrible for you. You know, this this natural, simple food is very healthy, even though it looks fatty and unhealthy. And people are saying, oh, I'm going to eat fat-free Cheerios and not eat salami because the fat-free Cheerios are healthier than the salami. And I'm thinking, I don't actually believe you. You know, and, and now that's what's all over everywhere. Everyone's saying, eat the salami, eat, the, eat a pork chop with the fat on it, drink whole milk and make sure it's raw. It's a whole different world. I mean, you've seen it too, right? It's a sure. massive transformation in just 10 years. So I think that slow food lit that fire in a lot of ways, and, and that's an incredible legacy. I know one of the items on my gift list this year is your book, Home Cooked, Essential Recipes for a New awesome. Way to Cook. And I'm curious to know what you will be serving this holiday season. Oh, wow. Um, I am thinking of, uh, I just came out of Thanksgiving, of course, and I did two turkeys. Um, I'm gravitating towards a non-meat Thanksgiving simply because I have kind of the butcher's daughter approach where I don't really buy any of our prime cuts because I can sell them. <laughs> I need to sell them. So I'm probably going to serve cracked crab and ham for Christmas. We do the most beautiful little petite hams, and I just warm them up in the oven and serve them sliced with um, mustard and fresh bread and then do a big bowl of cracked Dungeness crabs um, and some salads with it. It'll be light and easy. Um, because my, my favorite um, holiday meals, actually, or what I would recommend doing for a holiday meal, especially if you have a family like I do, is make a beautiful bolognese or ragu a couple days before. And then you can hand make your pasta or just get a good pasta and have that, like something really hearty and homemade but that doesn't involve you stressing out at the last minute um, and just make something really elegant and simple like a ragu or a bolognese or I even have in my book a recipe for a, like a rabbit or squab or chicken, like a, a white meat ragu that you just cook down for hours and hours, a little bit of tomato and vinegar and it's just so light and lovely and delicious. So making that beforehand, packing it away in your fridge and then whipping it out um, day of is my key for a stress-free Thanksgiving or a Christmas meal or Hanukkah meal. I mean, it's just all about make it beforehand. I don't think anybody wants – I mean, my, my philosophy on entertaining is that people are not at your house to eat the best food they've ever had in their life. They'll probably go to the French Laundry for that. People are there pretty much to see you and have a glass of wine. So make sure that you're available and the drinks are good, and then make something that makes you not stressed out. So make something beforehand, heat it up, have something elegant and simple, but have the bulk of the work done before so that you can really enjoy your guests because that's what the holidays are all about. It's about reconnecting with family. That is excellent advice, and I am hungry already. So on that okay. note, I will say thank you very much. I'm here for now, class thank of you. 1998. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.